0: If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now
1: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Fantastic. Well, welcome all of you to this wonderful evening, celebrating both an extraordinary life, of course, and an extraordinary book with an extraordinary panel. So things are at least three times extraordinary before anybody else has even spoken. I'm going to chuck that in at least a couple more times before I give the floor to anyone else. Um, Welcome to the London Review Bookshop, of course, our very own House of Sky in many ways. Although it's walled and it has currently a ceiling, of course our imaginations can soar in here, just as J. A. Baker soared in his extraordinary. There we are. Uh, encounter, <laughs> encounter with the Peregrine, uh, the life and work of which we're about to celebrate now. Um, of course, you know this 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 event and this book, and, and of course the shop itself, take place in, in a larger world, well, a world which is challenged, of course, on many levels by our own actions in many different ways. Just today, seeing the news that. Plastics have found their way even to the bottom of the Pacific Trench, uh, where we realise that our effect on the uh, landscape and the ecology of the whole globe is uh, now without parallel and without any kind of limit. So it's a delight, of course, tonight to celebrate a much gentler encounter uh, with an extraordinary creature, a relationship between human and bird that um, suggests both an anger and a joy in its encounter, and uh, a much richer and much more complex and much more enchanted vision of uh, this relationship than the one I mentioned just now but of course this event also takes place in the city and um, we've all made our way here by various means of course uh, following various paths ancient and modern I came by tube from Stratford to Hoban and on the way up the escalator at Hoburn, of course was greeted with an extraordinary litany of, of do's and do nots uh, do walk on the left do not walk on the right uh, do hold the handrail of course um, do not run But interestingly, um, as I uh, reached the top of the escalator, the texture of the language deepened and, of course, uh, a new complexity entered because that older litany is now superseded by much more precise observation, not least, of course, uh, in the spirit of J.A. Baker himself. Um, He was a precise observer of his own environment and clearly in the control room at Hoban, they are also precisely observing what's going on in their ecology. Because I was told, uh, just near the, near the top, and of course this directly applied to me, um, how acutely observant they were, uh, to hold the handrail while holding designer handbags. Um, obviously a particular threat of stumble and fall uh, on the up escalator from the central line. Uh, but it's that kind of precise observation that in a much richer and more uh, rewarding way we're going to um, obviously observe and, and celebrate tonight. You'll see the wonderful array of books uh, laid out here, um, which pay testament to the creative... Uh, team behind this uh, particular book while celebrating and uh, tracking the life of uh a Uh, an elusive individual, shall we say, at at best, someone who, in Hetty Sanders' wonderful phrase, had all the makings of a successful ghost. Um, That's not to say that this wasn't, of course, a hugely collaborative collaborative project, because it is uh, and has been throughout. Uh, We should, of course, raise a glass, a huge glass, um, to Little Toller Books, of course, who have published this magnificent volume, little in name, giant in stature, of course. Um, Adrian, Gracie, and John here tonight. Um, amazing project enterprise brought together with the extraordinary collaborative team beyond, of course, the front of house here, photographer Christopher Matthews, Artist Joe Sweeting, and of course the Kickstarter funders, at least 20 of whom are in this very room tonight. Uh, more, of course, outside pressing to get in uh, once <laughs> the tickets uh, were freed up by the first 20 who grabbed them. So many thanks to all the funders of this coll- collective project, the collaborative makers, the publisher, and of course you, uh, the wider audience as well. But the team we're celebrating tonight, and I'm going to get a hear from very, very shortly, are of course uh, in front of you now. The great writer and advocate, Robert McFarlane. The author of this wonderful biography, Hetty Sanders, and the conservationist and archive creator, shall we say, John Fanshaw. They have all made this book possible. But of course, Hetty Sanders has brought this life together uh, with such sensitivity, intelligence, and poise on the page that we're able to celebrate a book and not just a life outside of the covers, shall we say. So delighted to welcome now, first of all, John Fanshaw to
3: set the archive base for us how this book became even possible in the first place. John, thank you very much. Thank you very much, um, Gareth. So just a couple of words from me, really. Um, I am in many ways a bit of an accidental archivist. Um, it, all this grew out, really, of my being a, 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 a birder in Cornwall as a boy, growing up in a place where peregrines had been, but really pretty much disappeared from. So that's where it started with me. And um, this, is, this is the peregrine that I read, the version that I read, or at least not this very one, because I lost that one, but this is the version <laughs> Which I must have been fourteen or fifteen when that happened, and it had a major impact on me. And I think that, looking now at where we are and what we're going to be celebrating and the amazing work that hetty has done, I have to say that i never never even really occurred to me to look at the well I, to look at the the bio that was on the on this book, which basically said so little about him, and so he was this mystery, but what i of course fell into was the extraordinary text, and I don't want to i mean just very briefly, a couple of things that I remember. Describing the dis- differences in the English landscape as subtle and colored by love. And I was a young birder. You know, this is a pretty unexpected text. In fact, I didn't, when I first saw the peregrine, I was expecting a very different book. And his wonderful acute observation, as one of my favorites of all time, is his description of, of wren under the, under the wind, a wren in sunlight among a month, fallen leaves in a dry ditch, seem suddenly divine, like a small brown priest in a parish of dead leaves and wintry hedges devoted till death. And then last but not least, I, he's been criticised quite a lot for his observations of birds and whether or not they're genuine or, or not. But I love as one where he's quite close to when he talks about following the, the peregrine for ten years. He describes jay, a jay being killed by a peregrine, and after that he says, gluttonous hoarding jay, he should have hedgehopped, and lurched from tree to tree in his usual furtive manner. He would never have bared the white flashes of his wings and rump to the watching sky. He was too vivid a mark." So I love that sense of the fact that Baker clearly had seen what thought about these birds a lot. So just to dive quickly into the archive, I mean I was given a really extraordinary opportunity to edit his diaries They'd been brought together by, initially by David Cobb the filmmaker. I did this with, with Mark Cocker. And it was out of that that this sense of being able to learn much more of Baker emerged, basically. The diaries, there are, there are well, 667 pages, and we edited about a third of that into the, into the, into the book. But the, there are 500 place names, and it was in, in those place names, essentially, that we started to unravel Baker. Mark and I walking back, and course, across that, that landscape. The extraordinary thing then was when we published the diaries, people started coming forwards and we tracked back down to um, Baker's brother-in-law, Bernard Coe, who really was the linchpin in all of this, extraordinarily humble guy, rather disconnected from the whole Baker story, which of course had quietened away. He very sweetly um, allowed me to visit, went and talked to him, and we concluded that it was just possible that in the house that Doring Baker had lived, um, there might still be some material. So he went off, negotiated with her second husband, and returned, and I went back, and there were these extraordinary boxes. Just unbelievable. And I mean, I, again, I don't, you know, you know the story basically, but out of them came the binoculars, the photographs, the manuscripts, and all of this extraordinary material that bewitchingly Hetty has turned into, into the book and the illustrations. But just one other last point to say is that in the midst of all of that material was a couple of letters and material from Ted Dennis, who was Baker's best man. And he had then moved to the Welsh borders. And that was the last contact I had, we, we apparently had for him. But by dint of ringing up endless parish councillors and so on and so on and so on, eventually tracked him back to a new house in, in West Oxford. And it was there that I went and really that was where all the letters came from, which I think was the key material. Oh, and it's it's critical material anyway for the biography. And so it was Ted Dennis and Don Samuel and John Thurmers, that group of tight-knit group of friends that Baker knew at school in, in Chelmsford that had kept these letters a wonderful little group of letters from Don Samuels, which he'd got out of his attic, he'd wrapped up in brown paper and written on the outside, confined to oblivion. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I'll, I'll probably stop there. I think that's enough for me. But um, more? No, less?
2: Well, uh,
3: More? Oh, oh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, the only thing I would say that is, I mean, I guess as a, as a birder, you know, and a bird conservationist. Baker's a really interesting figure for me. I mean, he he writes so powerfully and so movingly about the landscape. And um, I think, I mean, I've written a little bit before about this. There is a there's an extraordinary article he wrote in Birds magazine about ness. and about how angry he was about the potential development of the third airport there, which, of course, never went ahead. Um, And I have this tremendous sense that if he'd been well and if he'd lived on, he would have become an extraordinarily activist. He would have written much more about the landscape of of Essex that he loved. Um, The other thing is that there's something extraordinary about... um, handling the objects. I mean, Rob will probably talk about this as well, and maybe Hetty too, but the binoculars particularly for a birder, it's amazing to pick up those birders. I mean not those birders, those binoculars. <laughs> we're now so you know, we're now so lucky to have these extraordinary modern optics. I mean just unbelievable optics. But those old optics, many of them borrowed from the you know, from well they were ex navy, ex ex those my my first binoculars were X ex army, I think. And um so they were very, they were very. It was very special to handle those, and well, as Rob, Rob, Rob did too. Look through them and imagine that we were Baker. Um, so that was very moving. And then the, the, these photographs are so wonderful. I mean, for me, there's one of there's one of him in. It's a long. It's like a kind of spring. You have to unpull it out. It's a school photograph. Do you remember that Yay. one, Hetty? from yeah, his I mean. primary school? And in the middle of it, there's this owlish figure. Even then, quite owlish. And there's a pencil line drawn right the way across <laughs> the picture with an arrow pointing to him with the word me (laughs) (laughs) which is just lovely and then there are a couple of really moving pictures which for me as a well, now, eventually, it's not common for birders struggle to get married one way or another. But um, my long-suffering wife was, um, was taken on many, many bird-ringing and birding trips, including to places like rubbish dumps to look at gulls and um, But there's a fantastic couple of pictures of Baker and, and his wife mm. on the edge of the, of the estuary at the Blackwater, what it looks like. So you get the sense of poor Doreen being taken out into the birding landscape. And photograph there, drawing their courtship and probably wondering quite what she was marrying into. Anyway, I will shut up at that point.
1: John, that's tremendous. We'll definitely come back to you about that archive detection work. Because in a way, in tracking down the materials is a little bit equivalent to, of course, Baker himself tracking the birds in yep. various ways. Elusive in all sorts of uh, different expressions. Hesse, John's um, idea of, of uh, Baker marking himself me mm. so clearly, it's almost like he, ha- he doubted that he would recognize himself later in life in some way, <laughs> that he would have disappeared. He was this, on this search to become partly nameless and almost invisible, so he had to sort of you know, make the record then, perhaps, mm. or at whatever point he did. Um, this is a very elusive life, and although this, without this documentation, mm. the book probably wouldn't have happened at all, it has happened, thankfully. But still, there's, there's a lot of gaps in this life, aren't there? Mm. And you have to make the leaps of imagination at certain points. But just give us a sense of how you came to the archive and, of course, catalogued that and then yeah. took the book project.
4: Yeah. Um, so I, I, I came to the, the archive um, mostly through... Uh, I, I, was, I was on a, a postgraduate course um, with being taught by Rob. Um, and um, I wasn't actually going to take the course. Um and then I, I thought, oh god, why not? Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Rob. Um and um and yeah, then one week we had to read this book and it was I, I read it and I thought, gosh, that's it was so startlingly strange and it wasn't what at all what I thought it was going to be. Um and uh had this very like violent cold beauty to it. Um, so that when I, I actually ended up writing about it on the, um, during the course and Rob said to me oh why don't you go and look at, there's a there's box of stuff that was baker's um, at the University of Essex, why don't you go and look at it um, and I went over and spent an afternoon rifling through it anyway I did all that stuff and funnily, it was kind of funny during the um, the time that I was writing about this, um, <laughs> I'd known that there were peregrines in Cambridge, but I'd never, ever seen one. I'd never seen one. And suddenly, all I could see everywhere were peregrines. Everywhere, every day. <laughs> um, and I kept walking into like, the university library and having these bits of bloody feathers just, like, falling down in front of me, um, all of which I took photos of and sent to Rob. Which I thought it was quite weird. Um, <laughs> like, look, peregrines! Um, and... Um, uh, yeah, I kept seeing them everywhere and when I finished that I was cycling down Silver Street in Cambridge and I heard this god-awful racket and I thought, what on earth is that? And I looked up and there was this, there was a, the fledgling pe- uh, bird of the peregrine nest sort of flying down Silver Street above me um, and I thought, oh god, these things again. Um, <laughs> um, and I thought, well, I'm not sure what I'm going to do now so I might as well go and see if I, see if they want the archive cataloguing. I kind of put the idea in my head. I thought, well, I enjoyed that. And I, I, I thought Baker was um, pretty, pretty amazing. Um, yeah, I got, to the, I got to the archive and um, was cataloguing it. And I, I catalogued it kind of, I guess, fairly perfunctorily. And I was, I was going through the materials and just trying to turn them into a list of things. And I didn't read lots of the stuff um, all the way through, particularly the letters, because some of the letters are incredibly long. And as John said, they are really what gives the idea of Baker as a as a person. Um, and then I came back to the archive when um, when Rob had come up with the idea of the Rob and John had sort of come up with the idea of the of the biography, and I'd sort of uh, been thinking about it. And I sat down and I thought, oh, I better read some of the letters um, just to sort of get an idea of because everything else sort of everything else. You could feel Baker through them, like the maps that he'd drawn on and the binoculars and the optics, but um, it was quite hard to get a sense of the person. Um, I sat down and I, the first letter I opened, I started reading it, and it was from when he was, um, uh, he was working in the British Museum Library as a, an assistant librarian, which was a job that he hated, um, and he was only left about a month. Um, because he got, he got sacked for taking books home <laughs> when he shouldn't, <laughs> um, for, for borrowing them. And I, I read this paragraph, and I, um, yeah, so it's March of 1946. Baker wrote to his friend Donald Samuel about the job, and he said, um, the people who use the reading room are indeed a peculiar crowd. The idea, of course, is that if you look through 50 books by others, you can get enough material to write one of your own. This is called research, (laughs) and enables you to abandon such unnecessary niceties as please and thank you, to forget where you are, and to wear clothes that don't fit. (laughs) Um, I felt quite bad and made sure to say please and thank you very loudly to the librarians at the Reading Room in Essex. Um, And I thought, oh wow, this this is a a real person, Um, a very human person, and a very humorous person. Um, and really from there, reading through the, the letters and, and all those things, I really kind, of, really kind of developed himself. And there are these points, you, like you say, with the, the photograph um, where he had... The, like, and I sort of sat in the reading room after reading that paragraph thinking, oh, Christ, that's me. Um, and, yeah, it's sort of, there's, there's this sort of feeling of Baker's ghost... Um, kind of looking forward into the future, which is very strange. Um, but he did—he did sort of know that he was—he uh, wasn't particularly. I don't think particularly. Uh, I think he was a nice person, but I, he wasn't—he wasn't, he wasn't a very easy person. Um, quite a difficult man, and not always very nice. Lots of his humour is, is sort of a little bit jibing. Um, but he—he he did admit to his friend Donald Samuel. Um, I am a self-centered person in the extreme. My temperament dictates such egotism. That uh, was the sort of character that he recognised in himself, even as, even as a very young man. He knew that he was a sort of uh, introspective, um, sort of prone to uh, bouts of sort of very personal uh, malaise. Um, but but he was, in that sense, very much uh, a writer in the way that he thought of himself as a writer. Um, and, and, I don't know, um, Robert Mitchell has written, um, he said something like, uh, writers are egotistical little tyrants who can't work with other people. Um, <laughs> I hope this book shows that we can work with other people. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I think there was an element of that with, about, about him. He found it difficult to, to work with others um, and, and was very private and, and <coughs> driven, very driven,
1: Thank you. We'll come back to his earlier life um, mm. a, a little later on, because it seems very important to, to give a sort of flavour of that. It, it informs, obviously, what follows. But could you just give us a short reading, perhaps? From, oh, yes. Where do you would like to go in?
4: Um, Shall I do one at the end as well? So? Shall I do one at the end as well? Absolutely, sort that'd of, be great. Okay, so yeah,
1: yeah, the more the merrier,
4: yeah. Well, I'll, I'll do, I'll do, I'll read, um, I'll read the first, one of the early encounters with, um, the Peregr- with A, with a peregrine, Baker's peregrine that he had, thank you. Um, and then I'll finish later with um, the last sort of diary entry that we have of his. Um, so yeah, on a Friday outing in October 1954, when Baker saw some uh, a, a, a bit right about some uh, gray plover <laughs> beforehand, um, uh, he also, Baker also thought he saw something else more exciting. At the bottom of that day's diary entry, he wrote, it may have been on this day, or possibly on a September day, that I saw a bird that I spoke to myself about as a peregrine. I was at the angle of Lauriston Marsh, between Joyce's Bay and Lauriston Beach, when a pigeon-like bird flew over, high and fast, going west-southwest into wind. I thought at that time that I couldn't see a peregrine in such a locality, being ignorant of their movements. Something unfamiliar about the fast, flapping flight made me try to get a better view. I failed to do so. That was quite typical of his early birding. He wasn't very successful. Um, That was one of his first encounters with a peregrine. Uh, I'll I'll leave the rest to Rob. Um.
1: Thank you very much. Um, Rob, you've written uh, extensively about the book over recent years, and clearly it's had an enormous uh, influence on you. There's a wonderful moment early in in Hetty's biography where Uh, She talks about a meeting with you in Cambridge and then stepping out into a kind of synchronous kill that (laughs) confirms the project is on the right track, (laughs) shall we say. Um, I'm reminded of that great observation by J.G. Ballard, I think in the Atrocity exhibition, which perhaps is quite suitable, where he says, um, deep uh, deep assignments run through all our lives. There are no coincidences. (laughs) And it seems that that's absolutely the case in in Hettie's encounter with, with Baker, but perhaps also with yours. Uh, the book's had a huge influence on you. Mm-hmm. Give us a little sense, if you could, of when that started and how it's developed.
2: Hello, everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, thanks, Gareth. Thanks to everyone here. And i uh, just like to take this public opportunity to congratulate Hetty, who, <laughs> yeah. it is a, you know, For anyone to have written this book would be an extraordinary achievement. And for someone to write this as their first book at... Am I allowed to call you young? <laughs> at, a, oh, I hope so. at, at a younger age is is absolutely formidable, and she's she's done an extraordinary job, uh, not least as she first met the peregrine two and a half years ago.
5: Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, um, then I thought I'd just begin with a story of misidentification, which seems to me in keeping with. No, don't worry. Not not. Seems to me in keeping with Baker's own birdwatching, but 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 bears slightly on my own uh, second. Chief Encounter with the Book. I, I first read it at the age that John was when he first met it, and it gripped me very tightly then. Uh, I didn't, didn't know that it would n- never let me go, as it were. But in 2002, the New York Review of Books got in touch, or uh, 2003, I think, and asked me if I would introduce a new edition of The Peregrine, which by that point, I think, had, well, had fallen out of print. Yeah. And there was clearly a, a latent cult fascination with this book and its powers but it, it, it was pretty latent and uh, I said that I would be thrilled to do so and not least because I rather cherished the NYRB editions and it was it was very exciting to me that this would this would occur so I wrote the introduction which made all sorts of factual errors about Baker because nobody knew who he was at that point point. Uh, and I incorrectly surmised this and that and my research was nowhere near as good as
5: Petty's has been,
2: and, but nevertheless the edition was published and it arrived in a big box, and I happened to be I think I'm recording this right, with Helen MacDonald at, at the time the edition arrived uh, we were spending a lot of time together around then, and I unpacked it, it's here, it's here I unpacked it, brought it out and there was a sharp intake of breath from Helen, and even I knew that the bird that was on the front of this edition of the peregrine <laughs> was not a peregrine um <laughs> Helen said, "That's a fucking red-tailed hawk," uh, <laughs> or words to this effect, and um, and we kind of sat there, uh, and the bathos of this moment was was very powerful. And it was a, it was only afterwards that I began, in my lectures on the Peregrine, writing about it, that saying that this was, you know, the equivalent to Tarka being being fronted with a polecat or <laughs> you know, Moby Dick with a dolphin, and um, it really was. Pretty substantial in a book called *The Peregrine*. So, anyway, we, we made this clear to 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 Edwin at the New York Review of Books, and that that edition um, was fairly swiftly taken taken out of circulation, and po- possibly at this point still covers the M twenty five somewhere uh, near South Mims. But uh, and they came back with a with an ornithologically accurate edition, which some of you may have seen. Uh, Baker's influence on me has been huge and the best figure I have for it really is that of optics and it's something we've we've talked about a great deal John and I have and I'm sure Hetty has done the same have held Baker's binoculars up to our eyes and when you do so there is at once a kind of primary thrill of the experience and there is a secondary guilt at the excessive symbolism of the act as well but Baker's style is so forceful that it comes to uh lensatically determine perception that's that's been my experience to the degree that i see in baker's words and i've tried to write about this that when when you see as i have done on the shores of loch Ericht, when you see a peregrine circling the words of perception that leap to your mind and to your to your lips are those of baker and you realize that you are you truly are seeing through style as a kind of as a kind of lens and that's uh, both surprising and slightly intimidating. And I think those of us who've been very powerfully uh, affected by Baker's style, those, those of us who are, who are writers, have found it quite difficult to, to get away from it when writing about, certainly, Raptor's um, landscape more broadly. Although he says very chasteningly on the first page of the of the peregrine, uh, detailed descriptions of a landscape are tedious, uh, which I feel I possibly ought to pin up on my uh, on my writing desk <laughs> rather more visibly than I have to this date. But he's um, he's in fact, I think, optics in their uh, sort of analog sense slightly fall short of what Baker does, and I've come to think of it a little bit more as a kind of oculus. Rift as a sort of augmented reality visor that is slipped down over you because it, he isn't just a visual writer, although that's what's drawn people like Werner Herzog to him. Uh, some of you will know that The Peregrine is one of the, the three books on Herzog's Mm -hmm. rogue film school reading list, the others being magnificently, uh, uh, Virgil's, is it The Aeneid, uh, and, sorry, there's The Aeneid and there's The Warren Report. And there's the peregrine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's fantastic. But he is a fabulously multisensory writer. It's landscape on acid. Uh, Mm. It's it's Mm. something that happens where your whole uh, sensory, your whole sensorium is adjusted by by what you have read, and it's it's really hard to get away from. Once you've dropped the tab, it's in your (laughs) bloodstream. So I think uh, you know these these are Mm. this power is is fascinating, and actually one of the things that Hetty's done, and what the archive that John. Really, magnificently, has sleuthed together uh, is revealed to us some of the technicalities and the craft of how Baker made this this style that explodes into the reader's mind. And I don't know what your sense is of of what the archive reveals, Hattie, about that that style.
4: Well, uh, yeah, I think you're you're completely right. It has that. um, When he, I feel like when he says that landscapes are um, tedious. To, to write about in detail, um, he then goes on to write a whole book about landscape i mean it's, but but he has it in such a specific way um, where it's it's the focus of the landscape is not on the things that we would normally see it 's on the things that the that the that the bird itself would see um, it 's very much it's very much it doesn 't include it only includes humans as these sort of menacing shadows um, at the sort of edge of vision um, and the very bright and startling things are the other creatures of the landscape, the the other birds, the the prey animals, the the moments of the kill, um, and the vision. These, sort of, these sort of long horizons that you get, um, sort of visions of the uh, blackwater estuary. Which um, I think is, I think that's something in his in his. But, but he 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 did these. I think um, the, what well, the archive shows that he um, one of the ways in which he achieved this was to have. Many, many maps. He loved his ordnance survey maps and all sorts. Of, and, he, and he had these incredible um, collections of uh, maps of various um, uh, areas around around Chelmsford and, and the Blackwater Estuary. All of which he would mark up in various ways with his uh, either the, the tracks that he would follow or various distances. Um, Danbury Hill, which uh, I think John talks about, and I talk about at the beginning of the book. Um, of the biography, um, and which Baker starts his uh, his uh, his own peregrine mm. book with um, the long submarine shaped hill he talks about, yeah. um, uh, Danbury Hill is the sort of weird center for it, um, and on one of the maps, I think it 's even the one on the end papers, yeah, it is um, He went round all the contours and outlined them in red pen. Um, just to get the just to get the the very stark vision of what it is that a a a, bird, a peregrine particularly but any bird would have seen from from the sky, um, and he was fascinated by um, his, huge, his incredible collection of books, which we were lucky enough. John was lucky enough to get uh, photographs of some of his library shelves, um, this sort of personal reading, um, and he was fascinated by um, uh, all sorts of geology and, and landscape texts, but also he had a, a collection of pilot guides mm. um, and he must have had a very um, detailed knowledge of the, I'm not sure whether he sailed, I I'm pretty certain he didn't sail or anything himself, but um, he certainly had a very detailed um, eye for the, the shape of the land as it met the sea mm-hmm. um, in a way that, that one would get from from the, the estuary side mm. Um, uh, and the sort of the the way the the well the way the sort of the land sort of because gent- the, the the shoreline along there is so fluid. Um, yeah, he had a very a very excellent eye for that. Um, he's very yeah a, a sort of focus on on shifting waters and rising uh, land. I think that came from those maps and those that sort of detailed knowledge of um, the estuary in the area that he was living in.
1: Thank you. I'm, I'm very struck by what you, you're, you're saying about him marking the, you know, the, mm. the, the maps, you know, the document, the, the, the writing, the kind of the, the, the mark making on the page mm. is a form of sort of perceptual encounter mm. before or after the event. He's trying to reverse the kind of, you know, the point of view, of course, to be the thing looked at um, in more conventional encounters. I mean, John, where does he sit in terms of his? Um, his bird-watching, bird-being kind of register. I mean, of course, he's way out at one end of the spectrum. (coughs) But I was struck in The Guardian last weekend, Jonathan Franzen wrote about his time in Ghana, bird-watching, and he called himself a very failed bird-watcher. He called himself a lister, not a twitcher. (laughs) And that he was obsessed with listing his encounters in a a kind of classifying way, which, of course, um, J.A. Baker also did in various Mm. ways. But, but where, what what range of opportunities are there to be a bird watcher? This is not a world that I know at all well. But, you know, but Obviously, between full sort of, you know, um, inhabitation of the bird that one's watching, but various other encounters along the way towards that.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's it's funny you should mention Franson, because he, quite apart from the fact that he seemed to be searching for the melancholy woodpecker, which was a rather wonderful bird. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, he, yeah, he kind of admitted himself to be a, a lister, a twitcher, a gatherer of lists, which I guess many of us are. I mean, I have a notebook in my pocket with a list of birds um, that I saw yesterday. And, I, you know, one does do that very much. One of the striking things about Baker, I think, was that the, when I first encountered the diaries, they were very un like mm. So, you know, he would go home in the evening and write them up. But then when we began to get the archive material, lists did appear, lists mm. of birds. So he was obviously had that listing scrupulously, but also, interestingly, analysed his texts in lists, didn't he? He was very analytical about his mm. own texts of similes and metaphors and adjectives, everything measured out and thought through. So he was a strange mix. I mean, I'm interested... I mean bird, birds ca- I don't I mean, many of you in the audience are probably birders and bird watchers but <coughs> birds catch people in a whole variety of different ways. Um, Tim D writes very movingly about this, I think, and um, I had an interesting conversation once with the artist Marcus Coates, conceptual artist Marcus mm. Coates, who is a fantastic um, interpreter, shaman of, of birds, basically. Mm. And Marcus said that, you know, I grew, up to become a, to, I grew up and became a conceptual artist, but I was caught as a boy by birding in the same way in, in the conversation with me as I was. I just went off and did a doctorate in tropical forest birds. So I had a very different trajectory. But I think that that, that extraordinary <laughs> capture that birds have over people is, is quite common. Hugh Miles, the filmmaker, actually. Wrote when I talked to him about the Peregrine, he said he read Baker and it helped him become a better filmmaker, mm. it allowed him mm-hmm. to see in ways he felt he might not have seen without reading the book. So he was kind of Baker as a school teacher for filmmaking.
2: Well, that's I mean, Herzog, that's, Herzog admits that. Um, I wrote <laughs> to Herzog uh, a year ago now because. I've been waiting, as so many people have been waiting, for Herzog to film The Peregrine. I mean, it couldn't be a more Herzogian subject. It's one man and his wilderness, uh, it constrained in this case by the perimeters that Baker so forcefully imposed on his subject. And I wrote to Herzog and I said, Look, uh, I sent him the photographs of the, of the eviscerated white dove that mm. Hetty and I had discovered. Stepping out from the meeting we'd had about her biography, and there, below the, the belfry of the church over the road, was, was the, the, the eviscerated white dove. So, oh, here we are in Baker's symbolic world again, <laughs> but uh, perfectly splayed on the pavement. So I took a photograph of that, sent it to Herzog, and I said, when are you going to film it? Yeah, please film it, and if you do, could I possibly just you know,
0: get involved in it? Um, and, uh,
2: and to my astonishment, he wrote back the next day. He's actually—I now know—he's quite rapid response. Uh, but and um, and he wrote back, and he said some very nice things about things I'd said about the Peregrine, which he knew he unfortunately had the Red-tailed Hawk edition. But we'll uh, let that pass. And uh, and then he said, "But there are some books which are unfilmable." And of the and he said, "There's uh, he said there's one by Buchner, and there is Baker's The Peregrine." Indeed, I would go so far as to say that anyone who tries to film this book, should be shot without trial. (laughs) So, yours, (laughs) Werner. Okay, message received. Um, But I just wanted to pick up very quickly on something John said, which I think is fascinating, and it's actually something Hetty, in her own graduate work on this book, helped me to see much more clearly than I had before. Baker Baker was a, um, a list maker, a fierce observer of his own prose. And one of the amazing things in the archive is that if you get to see The proof copies, these red-jacketed proof copies of both The Hill of Summer, which I think is a problematic text, which is effectively sustained ekphrasis of a wood, uh, and The Peregrine, which is much more dynamic in all the ways we know it to be. Uh, What you find happens is that he goes through his own paragraphs and he, he, he subjects them to a form of imagist accountancy, he tops up every metaphor, every simile, so he distinguishes between S, S and M, doesn't yeah. he? Mm. Uh, because he, I think he sees the metaphor as implicitly more dynamic than the simile. Every verb, and at the bottom of pages, he, there, are, there are running tallies for number of metaphors, number of verbs, number of similes.
4: Sometimes pronouns, too. Sometimes mm-hmm. pronouns.
2: Ad, does he do this for adjectives and adverbs? I'm not sure he uh, does. Mm,
4: can't, uh. He, yeah, sometimes actives.
2: And if you look at his maps, he's doing this for raptors. He's, he's, he's putting um, shorthand annotations in for where he's seen them. But what he's trying to do in that prose, speaking as a from a craft point of view and a technical point of view, is to absolutely maximise the kinesis of that prose. He wants more verbs and, and metaphors, which are drastically displacing tropes, embedded in that, in that prose, uh, as he can get, because the peregrine is the most dynamic presence. It's the is the presence that sets the landscape Mm. moving Mm. around it. Mm. And I think when you when you see him drilling down into his own effects, it's absolutely fascinating. You realise he was highly self conscious about what he was doing and the effect he was achieving. Of course when we meet it, we meet it innocently and that's why it it almost stuns us on first Mm. encounter. Yeah.
0: Um, I think I think sorry. In a
4: piece of course. Um I think in, in that sense he was he was a birder, but he was a he was a, a sort of literary birder first. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a writer before he was a a birder, most definitely. And and it's funny he said he says in this in the introduction to the Peregrine, um, uh, I came late to the love of birds, um, but I don't think that's strictly true in term. I mean, I think it, I think it was in terms of his ability um, in terms of in terms of coming late to the life of a birder. I think he didn't he didn't reach that until later in his life. But his love of birds, you find in his letters early on to his school friends, um, he, he's, always, he's, he's sort of always evoking the landscape and, 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 and the, the bird life within it. And some of his favourite poems and the quotes that he insists, he wrote out an entire Newbolt poem <laughs> um, about the nightjar, um, uh, whose loveliness is far deeper than the optic nerve, which is such a baker, such a that's that when he was, I think, nineteen, and that that line is such a Baker, line, you know, that you can imagine him writing that, mm. um, uh, and the sense of the the sort of optic nerve is, is what is what stimulates so much in in his own work um, that I, I I think I think he must have um, absorbed so much of a literary landscape of writing about birds, mm. um, which he then migrated into his own. His own external love and external experiences. Mm.
1: Thank you. I mean, given that you've talked about um, you know his literary sort of uh, origins, should we say? Mm. I mean, he wasn't a given in in physical or health terms that he was ever going to be doing what he was doing. Was he? Mm. he was extremely um, challenged in all sorts of ways, emotionally and, and uh, health-wise, in the early part of his life. Um, I'm struck. I'd like to ask you more about that, but I'm struck also by the poetry that is reproduced here in this uh, extraordinary volume. There we are. Um, and this poem, The Lost Kingdom, which is yeah. exactly what you're... Mm. which is, mm. really stands out as a key text. Um, in my cher- careless childhood, I was a wanderer, he starts. And at the end, he says, Now all this is changed across the green fields like long rows of the sharp red roofs. They have built over my childhood dreams. There is no way back to the bright fields of my youth, which can't help but prompt me to think about Alan Fournier's book, um, Le Grand Monde, the lost mm. domain, which it's almost an English counterpart to. It seems mm. this idea of trying to recover a landscape that's impossible to recover. But how important is his childhood in leading him towards writing? I mean, not just in terms of the kind of ideas you know that lead him <laughs> to the Peregrine, but his yeah. actual biographical uh, event, if you like, in terms of the fact of him becoming a writer at all.
4: The I answer?
2: Um, mm. Yeah. yeah absolutely.
4: Uh, <laughs> um, I think it's very important. um his His childhood growing up in Chelmsford, his um, only child um, the, the the child of a quite unhappy marriage, um, he, he seems he was a very before Shopify, were you wondering where are my sales at? Seems to have been a very sensitive child as well, and suffered quite a lot um, from uh, a quite aggressive father um, who also had a number of um, possible mental health issues. He may well have he may well have had a lobotomy at some Mm -hmm. point, um, which I talk about in the in the in the in the book. Um, uh, So I think I think in himself, I think that I think that perhaps taught him in many ways to, um, be very private, um, and, and to, and to hold lots of his emotions in. Um, and his own childhood, you know, he was a child of the suburbs essentially in Chelmsford. His, his father worked at the, at one of the factories as a, a draftsman. Um, and, uh, I, you know, Baker spent a lot of time as a child. Um, uh, the landscape around Charnold at the time in, that he was experiencing was under such radical shift, um, such enormous change. I think there was, um, in the in those in those in sort of between 1929 and 1949, something like a quarter of what was termed permanent grassland in in England was ploughed up, um, and changed and Built upon, and and Chelmsford was vastly expanding. You had the impact of the Second World War. Um, He himself experienced a lot of. Chelmsford was very terribly blitzed in the Second World War as well, Um, and many of the streets around where Baker was living and his parents were living were bombed. I think that must have had a very, very drastic effect on, Mm -hmm. on someone who was a very, who was a very sensitive individual. Um, And I, I, he sort of had, he spent a lot of time outside um and traveling around you know cycling around the the lanes of Chelmsford and and the sort of estuary area um which did impact him a great deal um and I think actually as a child he f- he was always a bit of a loner I mean his uh, uh, John managed to get hold of some of his friends from primary school and early secondary school and they very much labeled him they, were, they sort of said well he was a bit of a loner um, and uh he seemed to have, I say, suffered, but then it, it did it did him perhaps favours in that in the, in, in the, he managed to be able, he was able to write this book. But I, I think he was definitely suffered from a feeling of being an outsider, mm. um, which had developed itself even from even from a very small child. Like he, so he he wrote um, in some notes um, around the age of fourteen, he felt what he called an unaccountable fear of deprivation. There was, he said a sense of freedom lost, a feeling of absence that he connected strongly to a longing to be outdoors. Since his childhood, he experienced what he felt a growing sense of being imprisoned, of being bound like a bird that has the power of flight. Such a longing was in his mind raised to a freedom that belonged to nature and the things beyond the human. His jotted notes ramble through a series of impressions from this time. What he wanted, he said, was, quote, to get away, to be hidden, free because unknown, nameless as an animal is nameless and unknown. There was the realisation again that there was another life, a life beyond out there, where all that could ever really matter was happening unregarded. Um, And, you know, he's a teenager at this point and Mm -hmm. and very young, and and, um, he then became quite... He suffered with uh, bouts of illness at the time as well from... um, his, the sort of early onset of ankylosing spondylitis, this arthritic condition that he he had as an adult, um, and I think his sense of being always on the outside of the sort of groups in general, he was very intelligent but not very good at school, or intelligent but didn't like bits of school and didn't do well enough to, to, to continue into what he really wanted, which he really wanted to be a great writer even from a sort of teenage mm-hmm. time. Um, and I think he sort of felt <coughs> that... that that school hadn't really been for him but then he felt simultaneously um mm, like he like he'd sort of been cast out Mm -hmm. (laughs) in a way um he didn't have a connection to lots of the things that he Mm -hmm. felt would would Mm -hmm. would make him a great writer which he thought of as being a university education or or uh, the right qualifications and that sort of thing so i think he always Mm -hmm. felt on the outside of all of these things does that make sense
1: Absolutely. Mm. no tremendous and I think from that time of course is where you take the phrase for the title because he talks about this work that he will make doesn't he which mm. will be his house of sky mm. long before um, you know he finally yeah. kind of pins himself down
4: that was when he was about 21 22 yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah 2021 20, yeah when he was he was working at the um, uh, again he, he went through a series of um, brief jobs all in a row uh, most of which he didn't find to his liking um, one of which was on one of which was at the Oxford University Press uh, who, the building which is in um, uh, near um, St Paul's mm. and um, yeah he was sitting on top of the roof of. he used to go and sit on the roof um, and uh, and watch the birds and the people and the cars and all this sort of thing um, I think again, was typical of him. Sort of, he felt very much distanced from mm. from the people around him, and um, sort of was always on the edge of everything. Mm. Um, and I think he sort of found solace in in sort of extracting himself and, and sitting on sitting on the roof and watching all the things, and and sort of writing about it. And yeah, that was where he came up with the title with, with the with the idea of what he called my house of sky, mm. um, which would be whatever novel he was going to write in the future. Which of course the book was what it became. But yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Fantastic, thank you. Well, of course, this is a loved book, and it would not be the book of the statue it is without its audience, of which you are now the important representative this evening. 50 years since it was published, uh, 15 years since it was reissued by New York Review Books, 30 years, of course, since J.A. Baker died. Uh, in December uh, 1987, aged only 61. So a series of dates there to navigate um, as the book both hits its prize-giving status at the beginning and then disappears, slightly mm. re- returns, and is now, of course... Uh, Saint-Perez, as they say in uh, France, um, <laughs> a country we're soon to leave, of course. Um, it'll be difficult for us to go back and even say those words in this country um, after the end of March 2019. So we'll enjoy the Frenchness. Please feel free to speak in any language <laughs> you wish in celebrating this masterwork here uh, and the wonderful biography that has uh, come from it. Um, we're going to go to the uh, audience now. Um, so please do share your thoughts about Jay Baker, about the Peregrine, of course, about the Hill of Summer as well. And the diaries, John, Rob, and Hetty's wonderful work. Now is your time. Seize it, as they say. In other languages, also from other countries. Carpe. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh,
5: I, I just
3: wanted to ask you a little bit more about um, when you're talking about his um, kind of spondylitis and his rheumatism. I know Rob's written a little bit about this before. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, know, I know Rob's written a little about this, about, about his hands sort of becoming claws and him kind of going from being an observer of the peregrine and the landscape to being sort of part of it or being, you know, transforming into the thing that he kind of revered or admired. I just wondered if that, did that come through across in his letters, in his diaries, or was that something that's more this from the sense of the book? John? Thank you. Uh, thank, yeah, well, I'll
2: say something <laughs> in the head you can answer. Um so, I, yeah, I, somebody wrote an essay just yesterday, actually, I think, which slightly, slightly taken me to task for um, using the word uh, lessened. I, I think I said that Baker was lessened by his uh, illness, his spondylitis, and I think that's, that's right to um, pick me up on that word. So he was certainly changed by it, and just as he was changed by his myopia, I mean, he, had, he, he had some curtailed optics of his own and I think certainly I find it hard to read the book in, not in light of the fact that this was, a, this was a, a, a man who was unable to move as freely as he wished, whose body was um, literally fusing itself in towards st- stasis and who couldn't see uh, with, with anything like the extraordinary precisions of the peregrine's eyeball, which is a miracle of optical engineering that it is so i yes it's something that has fascinated me those people who've seen his author photograph will know fascinatingly to me that he presents very um confrontingly once you've seen it that the hand that has already Mm -hmm. begun to be fused is is front most in the author photograph when he does have an author photograph, and it's it's almost become a single white um, paddle because he, the, the the joints are fusing. So Baker, it's impossible to know why he did that, but what is clear is that he chose to place that front nose rather than to hide it, which would have been very easy to do in a in a head and shoulders author's shot. So that I I I will I will leave it there with my kind of apology for the for the for the verb. Lessened, but, cert- but certainly a commitment to the sense that he was changed influ- in ways that influenced the book. And then this fascinating moment of his presentation of that illness. And I don't mm. know what Hetty would then say.
4: Um, yeah, I kind of agree with that. It was. A, 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 I think I would probably add that he was extremely private about it, um, which is it's interesting. He is, he is a person seemingly of many contradictions at, at every turn. So. On the one hand, he was extremely private about his illness and many of the people who worked with him, um, he worked at the, uh, the AA as a, as a, a manager um, for a while in Chelmsford and would have been, um, his, his disease, it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it was sort of had flare-ups, it wasn't a sort of constant um, thing necessarily although it would have affected him um, and it got worse as he grew older obviously and you can see that in the writing. Um, it gets more spiky and more crabbed and 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 much more um tortured, i guess in that sense pained um, but he was very private about it, and many people who who knew him and and who worked with him n- had no idea that that he suffered from anything like it um, and in that sense i, th- I think i think he he did turn turn inwards with it um, in, in some ways, and, it, and I, I I don't I can't I don't know how I'm
2: Is there any explanation yeah. in the archive as to why he holds that hand up in the, no, the photograph?
4: nothing, because yeah. that's actually I think the latest photograph we that there is of him, yeah. um, and there aren't any. There's certainly none from a late any later date. Um, whether or not there were any, or or, yeah. or the, he didn't want any, isn't really clear. Um, but certainly, it was something that he he didn't necessarily share but then saying that um when uh when when people were writing to him in the 70s um in the years after his books were published uh he had many fan letters saying um <laughs>
2: show me peregrines yeah <laughs>
4: saying, bring me peregrines um he got lots of, lots of fan mail saying oh thank you very much i appreciate i you know, less appreciation really um and asking him various things, um, and he did write back to a number of them. And in a number of them, that from the replies that were sent, it's clear that he did talk about his illness <laughs> to these essentially strangers. Um, so it's again, he can't have he can't have been. It can't, it's 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 funny, like he mentions it to some people, but not to others. I, I I don't know, but he obviously um obviously it obviously affected him a great deal because it restricted him so much in his later life. Um, that after writing The Peregrine in the Hill of Summer, he really desperately wanted to go and write more, but it, he was stopped from doing so by his illness, like he basically couldn't get out. Um, and without that without that immediate, um, although he had these wonderful diaries, you know, reams and reams and reams of material to work from, he really needed the immediate um, encounter and, and, and the sort of the need to be outside among, among these things really was what he wanted, but he couldn't get it, and, and that really stifled him afterwards, I think.
1: Thank you very much. Yes, please, if we to, yep, come here and then we'll come to you. Thank you. Is- Absolutely, yep. This is, we should say this is being recorded, of course, for uh, London Review Bookshop uh, Circulation. I hope that's all right with everyone. Thank you very
5: much. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's a question, for Faheti, I haven't had a chance to read your book yet, but um, I came to the Peregrine quite recently and um, I was on a train journey from Bristol to York. It was very hot, cramped and sweaty, and I was reading the book and it had a very, uh, an immense impact on me, um, especially the focus on death. I, I began to think, you know, uh, if another bird gets its head ripped off, I'm going to have to get off the train at Sheffield. <laughs> um, but I just wondered, he seems to have a kind of almost pathological vision of the world. It's not, not simply about this marvellous bird, but also mm. there's so much death in the book. And I just wondered mm. what what you felt about that. Oh,
4: thank you. Thank um, you. Yes, it, it, there are some quite gruesome points in it. Um, I think, I don't know, right, right at the start he says, um, I will make plain the business of, the, the bloodiness of killing, is what he says. I will make plain the, the bloodiness of killing. Um, and he's talking in terms of, of the, the, the birds, but he's also, I think, talking about the, the sort of general context. Um, so much of his motivation came from um, a landscape that was being um, poisoned, basically, um, particularly in East Anglia, particularly in Essex, um, the impacts of organo- organochlorine pesticides like dialdrin, particularly um, and aldrin, were terrifyingly immense. Um, there were you, you, you would go on walks in the countryside and find hundreds of bodies of birds just littering the woodlands and the fields. Um, because of the impact, because of the, the poisonous effects of the pesticides that were being sprayed on the crops. Um, so I think in that in that sense, the book itself is, and also he's writing it from um, the. Although it's not dated the year, um, lots of the experiences that he's drawing on for for the the sort of the year that he writes about, which is really a sort of conglomeration of all of his ten, twelve years of diaries. Um, it's nineteen. Was it nineteen sixty? Nineteen fifty. What was? What was the year of the Great Freeze? The Great. 63, Yes. So the that that terrible winter, um, where so many creatures in, in, in the in the woodlands and the countryside were were, were dying of exposure. Um,
2: and that's when he meets the. That's the famous scene where he, so he meets the heron, yeah. uh, frozen, half frozen into the mm. into the stubble, and he gives it. Gives it peace. Is that, yeah. And, and then he said, then famously says, we are the killers, we stink of death. Mm. Yeah. And I think I would just perhaps add that oh, to me at least this emphasis on death and human complicity on death is actually one of the reasons it grips us half a century on. Mm. It, it feels that this has come only truer. Many of us here are talking about the Anthropocene, uh, this enhanced sense of feedback loops yeah. between our action, this widely distributed, unevenly distributed sense of complicity and guilt with, uh, mm. with the sixth great extinction crisis. And so, so I, think, I think something about its, its fierceness, the, the confrontation it makes with, it has with guilt, mm. the species shame that is suffered and denounced, the wish to, in fact, flee your species mm. and, and become the guiltless killer, which is what a peregrine is. Yeah. Um, is 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 hard at work in all of this, and I think we, you know, many of us who read it now, and I'm still dimly finding my way into the bloody psychodrama of its innards, mm. as it were, mm. feel some version of that, and it's that's why it's both confronting and, in its very odd way, hopeful. So, yeah. anyway,
4: yeah, it has it has I, I, there's there's okay. something something almost cathartic in it, but but something that is 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 very troubling. Um, it has it definitely has that effect of it's it's the, the bloodiness of complicity as well as as well as the he, he wasn't he wasn't going to shy away from from the um the clear sort of observational nature of, of of nature which is which is pretty nasty <laughs> in its in itself but but he also wasn't going to shy away from the death that was being perpetrated um but also unthinkingly by by people upon upon animals basically
1: Thank you very much. A question here? And we should say, of course, that despite our questioner's unease on that train and possible early departure from the journey, there are many positive reasons to get off at Sheffield. We just need to make that clear. I mean, this is a London-focused bookshop with a national reach, of course. Thank thank you very much. Thank you. Yes, please.
5: Hi. Given that he's a writer who's influenced writers, were there writers who influenced him? Were there books that you know that he, he loved or was fascinated by or
3: Dubai. Well, well, yes, I mean, I think one of the most extraordinary things that emerged, and I have to say this was Bernard Coe, his brother-in-law again, was this amazing um, photographs of his library, which were, were, were you know, literally yeah. taken, taken spine by spine, and I did an analysis <laughs> of, the, of the library, and um, mm. there are many books in there. I mean, I'm very struck, obviously, by the poets, and particularly Hughes, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, he had a real interest in that. And you can, you know, going back to this theme of red and tooth and claw, I think that sense, quite a lot of people have written that he was even more so than than Hughes. Um, Ballard? Ballard, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. I would say, I mean, you know, he, I think just going back to the discussion about the time at which he was writing a little bit, he's very much a child of, you know, what was then the Silent Spring, yeah, the absolutely. beginning of the environment exactly. movement. <laughs> now, I think, it, I mean, Hetty's describing the impact of the, of those chemicals on, on birds. I mean, this is what Carson was writing about in the US as well. Mm-hmm. I don't think we can imagine what it was like to be in that landscape now, when so many birds were dying. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Connor Jameson has even argued that, that there were so many birds were dead in the landscape that perhaps Baker confused some of these dead birds with kills and mm-hmm. vice versa. So you know, it was a it was a very different. Different um, <coughs> sort of encounter.
2: John, could you just say a word about? Cause he was also a child of the, as it were, of the nuclear age. I mean, it's to me, it's fascinating. Not, yeah. the, there are two kinds of dust that settle from the air in this book, uh, and two kinds of death that fall from the air, and one is pesticidal, and the other is radioactive. And um, John particularly has uh, been really fascinated on Brad, Bradwell Power Station and mm-hmm. um, what was ha- so Bradwell Power Station, as some people know, is perched out on on the end of one of the Essex. <coughs> Peninsulas and um, and was and well, the was peregrines being, have nested there. <laughs> they've
3: nested there, and they of course were being, you know, that Brad, they, the power station was being built whilst Brad well, whilst Baker was still alive. Yeah. yeah. So that landscape, where he'd walk if he walked along the ni- north side of the Black Blackwater Estuary, you look out over this fantastic landscape, and into the midst of this was growing this great big square nuclear reactor, this 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 block. Um, which ironically, when it was decommissioned, was held up for a while because peregrines came and nested on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, although, regrettably, I suspect that some of the, the, the nest was destroyed. Yeah. 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 But, um, yes, I mean, it's, it, I think it's, it's really important to think of him in, that, in that, that 1960s period. And the war had a huge impact on him as well. Sorry. Yeah. We'll just take the last question here. For Sorry. Good, yeah. Well, it's just information. Oh, information?
1: Always good, always good. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, I have here, uh,
3: as well as the loss of or um, the damage caused by chemicals, the loss of habitat also affected birds. Uh, between 46 and 70, 4,500 miles of hedgerow mm. were grubbed Absolutely. up annually in England and Wales with the greatest losses sustained in the eastern counties.
1: Yeah. The, yeah. yeah, he wrote about it in his diaries as well. Thank you. Yes, could we take, take the, this? There's other... Uh, yeah, we'll, oh, it's all happening now, isn't it? Right, we'll
2: gather.
1: Can keep going. No, we absolutely can no, keep no, going, yeah. No, thank you. We'll just take this one first and then we'll maybe gather the three and see how they sit together and then scatter them again if they don't. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, just to salute your uh, phenomenal achievement in uh, producing this book in two and a half years or
4: oh, thank you. Long, I
1: mean, it's just amazing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, congratulations. Um, with, with, with help. We've, 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 it seems you've spoken about. Um, three different lives, um, this baker's work life, um, his, his going out, his, his, his life in the natural world and his life as an artist. Is there anything in the um, archive about his relationship, his domestic life and his relationship with Doreen? Um,
4: Thank you. The short answer is, is not really, but little bits do pop up. Um, it's interesting. The diaries that he wrote covered uh, nineteen fifty four to nineteen sixty five ish, sixty six, and in all of that time, all of his diaries are um, specifically bird related and, and to do with his, his 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 walks and his sort of ex- birding expeditions. There are little points though where Doreen Doreen like, emerges through the sort of Textual, textual the but yeah, through the hedgerows of the, and some of these things are really hard to read. He crams all this stuff in, like tiny, tiny. Writes over himself as well. Um, yeah, she she appears occasionally. Things like um, she he couldn't particularly particularly later on um, after he published the *Peregrine*. Uh, Bacon never built, was ever, never able to drive. He never got a license to drive. Um, and, and Doreen could drive. And later in the seventies, she would drive him um, to places, and he would note things like Doreen drop you know D drop me off here. And that sort of thing. Um, and and during during his sort of earlier bird wing, birding, um, he would he would note thing. He would be noting uh, things like uh, things that Dorian had seen. So he'd be writing down, D saw this at the reservoir, or um, or brought back some feathers for, for D. Um, uh, so he'd, he'd go and, collect, and, and primroses and flowers and, 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 and feathers and things. He'd he'd sort of bring back. Um, or he talked about their garden and the birds that he'd seen in the garden that day, but she doesn't really appear at all. I found it very difficult to find out that much about her.
5: She
2: she has a brief entry in the archive. She she leaves a document, doesn't she, with David's <coughs> yeah. yeah yeah um, where she actually talks a little bit about him. So there's a very brief glimpse of what she and she doesn't she say he could be a prickly customer. Yeah, or exactly. Something, what she uh, says. Kind of, yeah, uh, there's a slightly long-suffering. <laughs> Partners moment there. Um, but, but there's also, I think it's, it's an odd kind of list. It sort of runs through the chronology, doesn't it? Uh, confirming certain details. Yeah. But, um, and, uh, and then she, but she, there's a tenderness, I mean, there's clearly a tenderness there yeah. as well as a exhaustion.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much. Let's hear the, the, the last three questions and then we'll see how their uh, ordering lies. Thank you. Comments, questions,
3: um, thank you. Very quickly, um, uh, is the peregrine more about uh, the peregrine, or is it more about J. A. B. Baker, <laughs> his times, and us all sitting in the LRB bo- bookshop now? And the reason why I ask it is there's two approaches. One is trying to be inside the thing in itself, i.e. the peregrine, or just relative, relativizing it and using metaphor and simile to sort of.
2: Mm. Thank yeah. you
1: okay. we'll, hold, we'll hold that that important thought and we'll just take was there another one it was yeah thank you
5: I was struck by the comment that uh, he was a literary person
1: before he was a bird person uh-huh. and did he see himself as in the history of sort of landscape nature mm-hmm. writing in mm-hmm. Britain did he did he see himself as having some position where he was just kind of super <coughs> generous yeah tremendous he decided to write about Thank you very okay. much. Well, we'll hold that as well, and just take the final comment here, and then we'll 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 spin it into an extraordinary weave of create okay. exactly creative <laughs> responses.
2: <laughs> yeah. We might have four. Oh, we'll, no,
3: have, no,
1: no, we'll have we no, have no, no, no. yeah, to yeah just but yeah thank ones. you
3: yeah.
5: Um, I just wanted to uh, to comment and, and and one sort of uh, slightly off uh, pieced question. Um, my father, who was conservationist in the sixties, so ah. was very involved ah. in. Um, You know, has always been a birder and still is. He always said the one thing that people didn't say about the Peregrine was that it was a campaigning book. Mm. He always thought his dad always said he said he remembered reading the book when it came out. Absolutely. And he he always says that it was never recognised for being a campaigning book. And he always Mm. actually thought that Baker didn't have the confidence to be a campaigner because he felt that he was looked down on. I I don't know. I was just I find that quite interesting Mm. that. And just slightly a different thing, because as Rob said, the Peregrine almost disappeared from sight, that, you know, sort of fell below the line. Do you think there are other books um, that could be brought back that have fallen below the line? I suppose I'm particularly thinking of The Red Start.
1: Thank you very, very much. So we've got the... the, Maybe
5: there's a hint there for some. Maybe there's a
1: hint there. So we've got the idea of the book being about Peregrine or about Baker. We have the literary uh, antecedents and also the influence going forwards, I would would add. And then those books that are lost, um, waiting to be recovered, but also that crucial observation about the campaigning. John, I'd like to ask you about the campaigning Mm. aspect of the book. I'd like to ask Hetty, obviously, about the book being about Baker or about the Peregrine, and Rob, you about the literary placing, backwards and forwards, if I could. And perhaps we could start with
3: you, John, in terms of its campaigning quality. Well, I, I, I mean, I don't... I mean, it's, it's a really interesting point. Mm. I mean, it obviously is a very, very powerful piece of writing, and Baker talks a lot about the African landscape, about pesticides, a whole of he feels, though he's trying to contextualise it much more widely, particularly in the introduction. But I mean, I, I would say that he, I think his ill health probably began to constrain him really significantly at a point where he might have become more of an active writer and campaigner. And I mean, this, the little essay which is in here, which came in Birds magazine, I mean, he, he actually writes, um, we must not let, well, this he's talking about the, 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 the death of, um, of, a, of a red-throated diver here, but he says we must not let its death be soothed away by the lullaby language of indifferent politicians, mm. which, I mean, you know, is, mm-hmm. could be written today, basically, <laughs> about the environment movement and much of the concern that we have. So I think he, perhaps he felt like an activist, and he was finding his voice. And maybe that sort of environmental activist writing wasn't, well, I mean, Carson, but mm. it, it's so commonplace now. We think of Monbiot, we think of mm-hmm. all of these people writing in this, in, this, in this genre, but it wasn't so common then. Maybe. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you. So let's lead into the, into the, the literary placing, if we could, <coughs> in the sense of did, whether he saw himself in, in a lineage and maybe also the sense of the influence he's had as well.
2: Yeah, it's a fascinating question. And uh, I, when I when John sent me the library database which he built up, which is just absolute gold to to mm. to someone well to, to so many people, I was fascinated to see Ballard there. Mm. Ballard writes this short story, Stormbird, Bird, Storm Dreamer, in the late sixties, which you obviously know, which is about pesticide. It's a fantasy SF, effectively, or futurological story about the effects of pesticide on on bird populations. And It imagines that what's happened is that it's caused them to grow to predatory size, all of them, and, they, and, and the whole of East Anglia has been militarized to resist the, the incursions of these uh, pesticide roided birds that come in to raid the fields of East Anglia. So clearly it's a war dream in some way, but it's also a very, very contemporary response. I think it's published in 67 as well, um, about to the pesticide crisis. So in an odd way, I mean, we can pick an easy lineage for him which involves... Hopkins and it involves Hughes, uh, but I'm more interested in the one that involves Ballard mm. and those other rather more unexpected outliers. I suppose the other thing I'd say is a sense, of, a self-conscious sense of a nature writing tradition which we have problematically and virtuously now. Uh, although, as I always say, I'd quite like to just cut the cut the adjective because we. You know, uh, and just call them writers um, I don't think it was there then particularly in terms of prose and in many ways he's a poet he's, 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 he's got more in common with HD, uh, he's got more in common with imagism, objectivism than he does with the kinds of, uh, sort of Francis Gilbert, uh Gilbert White style uh, country parson prose that we might associate with that stronger nature writing tradition as it was bearing on him then so I think he's, he knows he's trying to do something absolutely different, he doesn't know quite what it is but he's drawing beads on people like Ballard and that is one of the things that makes it so weird when we at that moment and still
4: if i could just add, if i just add like a small thing to that um, i think i think he yeah he, he very he very much his his bread and butter particularly as a younger man in terms of literature was was romantics um, and i i think he loved he he was deeply indebted to the romantic poetry movement but he also loved um a certain number of the modernists. He, he loved Dylan Thomas, mm-hmm. um, and and the this, this sort of startling lyrical, very um, evocative musical nature of, of Dylan Thomas's writing. He he thought was 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 very different and wonderful, um, and I, I think you find some of the sort of romantic lyricism in his writing for sure. Um, one of the interesting, I mean, the, the the course that I the wonderful course I took with Rob. Um, was uh, called the post-pastoral and I think there's definitely an element of of Baker seeing himself as um, coming from this sort of pastoralized romantic literary past inheritance um, and and the ways it's more interesting the ways in which in a sort of Ballardian way he he just sort of destroys bits of that or or turns them over and, and changes them into something very different and more startling. And it's sort of yeah, post-pastoral.
1: <laughs> Thank you. And if we could answer, if we can, or at least yeah. attempt to answer the, the, the mothership question. Is it, is, it, <laughs> is it about Baker? Is it about Peregrine? And then if you could lead into your closing reading, Hattie, that would be great.
4: Yeah. Um, well, I feel that bad, really, because I've, I've, after all of this, I feel like this is not something that Baker would really have necessarily wanted or appreciated. in terms of uh, him being a a private person. Um,
2: Do you mean all of this? This uh, Possibly, yeah, I mean
4: this. Um, But he he um, he very much saw himself he wanted to be a great writer. That's what he wanted more than anything. Um, And but it wasn't, he didn't necessarily want to be a great celebrity. It wasn't about him. The book, certainly, he, he's, he erases himself from so much of the writing um, in, in many ways, but is also very insistent on the subjective experience of the watcher being an important aspect of um, birdwatching. Um, so the feelings and the emotions. Actually, something that something something that didn't make it into the um, a, a line from his introduc- from a draft introduction that he had um, said something like um, I'm going to forget what it is now. Something like science science is not the only thing. The emotions are also important um, in terms of ecology. He was he was he was very insistent that that um, the, the Feelings were, were an important aspect, also to campaigning as well. I think he understood that um, that um, pe- people aren't necessarily um, passionate about science in its purest form. Um, they don't become passionate about about those things quite so much as they become passionate about things they feel very strongly about in an emotional sense. Um, so it's not really about the, the book itself. The Peregrine is not is less about Baker and more about the Peregrine. <laughs> it's a short answer to that um, question, really.
1: You. We'd you like to. Give
4: um, yeah, us a closing I just wanted to sort of. I was thinking about how to finish this, and maybe, um, maybe finish actually in, in, with something that combines all of those questions in one. Maybe the idea of the the, the campaigning and his literary uh, inheritance and how he felt himself fitting into the um, landscape of writing. Uh, so he loved Ted Hughes, um, and. Uh, this is just a little a little bit from Ted Hughes, The Hawk in the Rain, um, and uh, then just a, a little a little bit about um, Baker's feeling on that poem. Strain towards the master fulcrum of violence where the hawk hangs still that maybe in his own time meets the weather coming the wrong way. Hughes' poem, The Hawk in the Rain, was one of Baker's favourites. He left a number of subtle references to it in The Peregrine, Scribbled quotations from the poem among his notes. In particular, Hughes' lines on the hawk as the diamond point of will that pole stars the sea drowners' endurance were ones that seem to have resonated with Baker. Struggling against the pain of his illness as he crossed the salt marshes in search of peregrines, Baker must have felt both a deep connection and envy of the raptor flying without effort in the skies above. He was one and the same with the narrator of Hughes's poem, the hawk hunter who drags heel after heel through the ploughlands clutching clay, suspended forever in pursuit of the bird. The Hawks had become Baker's own pole star. They were at the centre of everything that he wrote. Perhaps he saw them as a lifeline, anchors for his creativity and ambition, but also for knowing his place in the world, in the landscape of his beloved Essex, and himself as a writer. Baker wrote that as a child, he had been struck by the abiding feeling that he belonged, quote, out there on the edge of things. This feeling pursued him into adulthood. Out there had been a hazy approximation of the distant horizon beyond Chelmsford suburbs, past hedgerows of elm and through farmers' fields into the no-man's lands of woods and desolate saltings. But being out there at the edge of things seems to have been the story of the rest of Baker's life too.
1: So what have we learned tonight? We've learned many things, of course. We've learned, first of all, that we need uh, someone with key information in the audience from the very beginning. This is the LRB shop equivalent of phone a friend, um, where we can get hetero uh, decimation, sadly, but we can get the facts when we need them. Thank you so much for that. We've also learned, of course, that there are many pressures on students, of course, on student debt, on student places, the whole idea of being a student. But now there's a new pressure added, which is the one to produce a major biography within two (laughs) years of taking a course. So that is added to anyone who is a student uh, in the room at the moment. Um, A very positive outcome, of course, in this case. This is a book, I think we should say, of Sebaldian um, focus and concentration. There are um, moments of extraordinary Sebaldian intensity where a V1 uh, missile dropping um, over a suburb is compared uh, directly and, and with great validation to the fall of a peregrine. This is a book that absolutely demands to be on the shelf for numerous reasons and on many shelves in the way that W.G. Sabaut himself uh, wanted to be. Um, this is a book that has prompted the question, what would a peregrine falcon sound like? if it was voiced by Werner Herzog, of course, which we now know it will never be. Um, And and yet, in in an incredible circularity, we can hear the voice of Werner Herzog as a plastic bag um, to give us the uh, counterpoint to this uh, wonderful celebration of the ecology, because he has exactly done that. If you go online and uh, Google Werner Herzog plastic bag, you can find a 17-minute film in which Werner Herzog takes us through the life and very, very long death of a plastic bag um, made by the extraordinary uh, Iranian-American filmmaker Raman Barani. Um, I jest not. Um, so do please find that, because it re- gives us a sense of Herzog's own um, uh, melancholy anger about what uh, else we do to the planet apart from celebrate it in the way that this book and this life and work does. Um, I would say at this point, form an orderly cue uh, to get the extraordinary triptych of signatures that you're able to do now, because all three of our wonderful guests have written in this volume. But of course, given the, the work we're talking about, I think at least one of you should make a voracious dive into that queue and seize the signatures um, ahead of any kind of permission, of course, at a certain point in the queuing process. I leave that up to you to, to decide on, as you will, as to who might be that person, um, the, both the Baker-Peregrine uh, audience member grabbing the signing. Um, literally by its throat. Um, but apart from that, of course, you will all be doing that. <laughs> and at that point, you can give to our wonderful guests the titles of the books you would like to see reclaimed and restored yeah. uh, to the great pantheon. Uh, I've noticed that Robert's already written down the red start. So there's always that's already a start, shall we say, about <laughs> a very red start um, to the list that we're about to compile. <laughs> um, but before we do all of that, of course, please do join me in thanking, first of all, Cressida, Charlie, and David tonight, the London Review Bookshop staff. Yourselves are coming, the Kickstarter funders for making it all possible. Little Toller, giants among publishers. But please now, particularly, do thank John Fanshaw, Robert McFarland, and Hetty Saunders. Thank you very much.
2: Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events,
0: visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.